Play ball. Welcome to the fourth inning of the Baseball Rabbit Hole podcast. The podcast where I look up some information about baseball and follow wherever it leads. This week, the rabbit hole I'll be diving into is the All-Star Game, an annual exhibition game played between the National League and the American League, showcasing the players who are good for half of a season. The first All-Star Game took place in 1933 and has been played every year except 1945, which was canceled due to World War II travel restrictions, and in 2020 because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Just for reference to anyone finding this podcast sometime in the future, I am recording this in the spring of 2021. There have been 90 games played in 92 years. So who currently holds the lead in this series? If you said the American League, you would be correct. But it's way closer than you might think. The AL holds a two-game lead with a record of 45, 43, and 2. Despite the closeness of the records, it rarely feels like the leagues are that close when they play the games because each league tends to dominate different eras of the game. In the first 10 years, the American League won seven of them. In the following 10 games, the AL and NL split the first two before the AL went on a four-year run, followed by the NL going on a four-year run. Over the next 38 games, the American League would only win back-to-back All-Star games once. The NL went 29-8-1 over those 33 years from 1954 to 1987. And if you are wondering what is going on with my math, there was a time when there were two All-Star games each year. From 1959 to 1962, there were eight All-Star games played with the NL going 5-2-1 over the AL in that stretch. I wish there was an interesting reason behind this, but it was all about money. The All-Star game was a big draw each year, so they had two of them to make more money for player pension funds. In those days, many of the players still had off-season jobs because ownership had all the power and salaries were still low, so they really needed the extra money in their pensions. Despite always drawing great crowds, the second All-Star game was canceled after 1962 because it just seemed unneeded and the ownership agreed to give players more money from the one game. By 1987, the National League had a 37-20-1 lead over the AL. All of that changed in 1988 as the AL won 25 of the next 32 with one tie in the mix as well. All of this is to say that despite how equal the records are overall, the All-Star game has been anything but equal for the last 70 games, with each league dominating multiple decades at a stretch. Records are great and all, but I was really more interested in how the game got started, and that led me down a rabbit hole about where the games get played every year. When I come back, we will find out about the origins of the game and the choices of the fields. Hi, I'm Michael Cotton, the host of the Baseball Rabbit Hole. You may know me from such podcasts as The C-Team, The Sun Rento Show, or The Jay and Silent Bob Minute. More than likely, you don't know any of those because those are all independent podcasts that don't show up on any of the lists against all the well-funded podcasts with celebrity hosts being produced by large corporations. 
to help with this, I created IndiePodReport.com, a place where you can find independent podcasts that you've never known about. Go check it out, support independent podcasts, and you just might find your next favorite podcast. The first All-Star Game was held at Comiskey Park in Chicago. The MLB has never been great at promoting the sport, and this was really no exception because they did not come up with this idea. Chicago Mayor Edward J. Kelly wanted a major sporting event to happen during the 1933 Chicago World's Fair to draw people to the city. The Great Depression was in full swing, and everyone was looking for ways to draw people out for events. The Chicago Tribune sports editor, Arch Ward, came up with the All-Star Game in which the fans would choose the starters and the managers would choose the rest of the players. Despite being a seemingly obviously good idea, it took some convincing for Kennesaw Mountain Landis, the baseball commissioner, to approve the midseason exhibition game. Even then, it was approved only as a one-time event because the MLB wasn't sure that people would be interested in the greatest players in the league all being on two teams playing against each other. I mean, why would they like that? The Tribune called it the game of the century and worked with papers all across the country to distribute ballots. On July 6th, it was estimated that 49,000 people attended the game of the century. The game featured 20 future Hall of Famers, but the true star of that game was Babe Ruth, who not only hit a two-run homer, but also killed the National League's hopes for a comeback with a great catch at the wall in the eighth inning. Despite having no foresight whatsoever, Major League Baseball was able to see how successful this game was with the fans, and they scheduled another game for the following year at the Polo Grounds in New York City. The game has traveled from ballpark to ballpark every year since. Generally, the game is flip-flopped from an American League field to a National League field each year. The home team is determined by which league owns the field. There were exceptions to this early in the game's history, when both the Phillies and the Athletics played at Scheib Park in Philadelphia, and the Cardinals and Browns both played in Sportsman's Park in St. Louis. For these games, the home team was determined by whichever league was scheduled to have the game that year. The only other exception was in 2016, in the second year of a four-year run of National League ballparks. That year, the American League was the home team at Petco Park, which is where the San Diego Padres play. The reason the AL had to be the home team goes back to the second tie in All-Star Game history. The All-Star Game had always just been an exhibition game to highlight the players. In 2002, that game was tied at 7-7 at the end of the 11th inning. Both teams had already used all their pitchers, so managers Joe Torre of the Yankees and Bob Brenly of the Diamondbacks decided to just call it a tie. This should not have been a big deal at an exhibition game, but the fans in Milwaukee booed and sports writers wrote bad things. So Bud Selig, the commissioner, made a knee-jerk decision to have the All-Star game actually matter in the next season. Selig proclaimed that starting in 2003, the winner of the All-Star game would determine who got home field advantage in the World Series that year. The AL was the home team for the next seven World Series and 11 of the 14 years that this rule was in place. 
This became a bigger issue when the MLB scheduled four straight games at National League parks from 2015 to 2018. It was a problem because it took away the home field advantage from the AL for four years of the All-Star game unless they let the American League act as the home team in National League parks. The only time this ever happened was in the 2016 All-Star game which highlighted how ridiculous the whole thing was. After this debacle, MLB realized that the home field advantage rule was ridiculous and ended it, thus returning the MLB All-Star Game to exhibition game status. If you are wondering, the only other tie in an All-Star Game was in 1961, during the second All-Star Game of that season. It was called due to rain after they had already completed nine innings, and nobody really cared. Every stadium built before the year 2000 has hosted an All-Star game, except for Tropicana Field in St. Petersburg, Florida, home of the Tampa Bay Rays. With the Rays trying to get a new stadium, it may never even get one. The ballpark that has hosted the most All-Star games is also the first to host an All-Star game, Comiskey Park in Chicago. From 1933 to 1990, when they tore it down, Comiskey held 31 All-Star Games. You might be thinking, how is that even possible? So I'll go down that rabbit hole after the break. If you like this podcast, you might like other independent podcasts too. The hard part is they aren't easy to find. So I created IndiePodReport.com to help with this. IndiePodReport.com has lists of independent podcasts sorted into your favorite genres. Also, if you have an independent podcast, send me an email at contact at IndiePodReport.com or hit me up on Twitter at IndiePodReport to let me know about it. While you are there, feel free to drop me a dime on the support page where you can find information on supporting IndiePodReport.com and my podcasts. So, you are probably trying to figure out how Comiskey Park was able to host so many All-Star games when I just told you that the All-Star game changes venues every year. Well, the answer to that is in the Negro Leagues. Like the rest of America, baseball was segregated due to the efforts of ignorant racists. But that doesn't mean black people didn't play baseball. There have been black ball clubs from the beginning who would barnstorm around the country and play games wherever they could schedule them against both black and white teams. In 1920, Rube Foster, owner of the Chicago American Giants, was able to organize several of these teams into the first Negro National League at a meeting in Kansas City, Missouri, establishing the National Association of Colored Professional Baseball. The league spawned rival leagues like the Eastern Colored League, the American Negro League, and the Negro Southern Leagues. The Great Depression made it hard for these leagues to survive. Although the leagues were struggling, there were still black baseball clubs that continued to play. And in 1933, Gus Greenlee, owner of the Pittsburgh Crawfords, established the second National Negro League. Everyone was aware of the upcoming Game of the Century to be held at the World's Fair in Chicago, and the Negro National League wanted to showcase their players in the same way, so they created the East-West game to be played in August of that year. The Chicago Defender and the Pittsburgh Courier, two of the major black newspapers of the time, 
counted fan votes to determine the rosters. Chicago, being centrally located, was chosen as the location, and the NNL also got the same venue as the MLB. Comiskey Park hosted both versions of the first All-Star Game in 1933. This game featured 12 future members of the Baseball Hall of Fame, including Oscar Charleston as the lead vote-getter. The other Hall of Famers taking part in the game were Cool Papa Bell, Biz Mackey, Judd Wilson, Judy Johnson, Satchel Paige, Andy Cooper, Pop Lloyd as the manager of the East team, Turkey Stearns, Willie Wells, Mule Suttles, and Willie Foster. Also, although he didn't make it to the Baseball Hall of Fame, Fats Jenkins was on the East team, and he eventually made it into the Basketball Hall of Fame. The game drew 20,000 spectators for the 11-7 West victory. In the inaugural season of the second Negro National League, marked by various struggles, the East-West game was an unmitigated success. The East-West game was played 35 times over the next 30 years, with Comiskey Park hosting most of those games. They played two games in 1939, 1942, 1946, 47, and 48, with one game being played at Comiskey and the other game being played in a more eastern city, Comiskey had at least one east-west game, except for 1958, 1961, and 1962, which was the final year the game was played. In the years after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier, the Negro Leagues and the communities that supported them suffered. While integration of baseball was good for the country as a whole, pushing it a little closer towards equality, it was bad for the Negro Leagues as their best players were recruited by Major League Baseball, thus creating the impression that the teams that were left were not as good. The final East-West game was played in Kansas City, Missouri in 1962. Jackie Robinson was given the key to the city, but the league officially shut down shortly thereafter. The history of the Negro Leagues is being kept alive at Kansas City at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. If you want to learn more about the Negro Leagues, the East-West games, and the players that made them successful, head to Kansas City and give them a visit. I started with one All-Star game and ended up with a completely different one. But now, I think I'm going to climb out of this rabbit hole. You're out! If you have a rabbit hole you'd like me to poke around in, hit me up on Twitter at IndiePodReport to share your ideas. If I do a show about your suggestion, I will shout you out. And now for the box score. The Baseball Rabbit Hole is researched by Michael Cotton, written by Michael Cotton, produced by Michael Cotton, edited by Michael Cotton, and performed by Michael Cotton. Hey, uh, I'm back for some extra innings. Uh, I worked on this podcast and finished it up before the big news about the 2021 All-Star Game broke. So I figured I needed to jump back on to talk about this. First off, I fully support the Players Alliance and MLB for pulling out of Atlanta in response to the bill that Republicans passed this week that limits voting access in Georgia. Anytime something like this is passed, it affects minority and poor communities much more than the affluent who can afford to jump through these hoops more easily. 
Some will argue that the law does not limit black voters specifically, but the history of this country and Jim Crow laws have taught us that this is exactly what is happening. The color line in baseball was never formally written out, but it does not change the fact that black players were prohibited from playing in Major League Baseball. It is good to see Major League Baseball, and more specifically, the Players Alliance, for calling out the law for what it is, which is veiled racism and taking the All-Star game away from Georgia.